Let's have a look together at 2 Kings chapter 5. It's on page 267 in the Church Bible. If you turn there, we're going to work through this passage pretty closely, verse by verse. Just to begin, I want to say something about stories. You know, children love stories. They love to uh, dive in and figure them out and learn early on how to enter into a story and sort between the, the heroes and the villains and to cheer for the good guys. They love uh, playing the characters and, and especially at Halloween, um, dressing up as them and uh, you know that they know who the good guys are because you see uh, a lot more Black Panthers and Wonder Women than you see Voldemort's every year. Um, so they, they love the heroes and they want to grow up to be the heroes, don't they? Well, adults need stories too um, we need heroes, too, that we can emulate, but our world is complex, and uh, people are complicated, and so the stories that worked for us as kids may not work anymore. The best stories for adults oftentimes are ones that somehow challenge those tropes that we learned originally in the children's stories and challenge them in surprising ways, um, helping us to see something new. Jesus was a master storyteller like this. Jesus oftentimes told stories that had a surprise, a gotcha, um, that taught you something new. Um, think, for example, of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, a guy gets mugged on the road. Three guys see him lying there. Um, which one do you think was the good guy, right? Which one was the neighbor? Uh, it's very easy from the outset. We know who these guys are. If, you, if you're a first century Jew, this is kindergarten stuff. There's the priest, there's the Levite, and there's the Samaritan. Of course, the priest and the Levite, they're the good guys. The Samaritan, he's evil. He's always, always the bad guy. This is a simple story. We know how it's going to turn out. But as Jesus tells it, um, as we get into it, we discover things are not as they seem. And the priest and the Levite, well, they are not as virtuous as anticipated. And of course, the Samaritan, the wicked uh, half-breed Samaritan from, from up north, he's the one who turns out to be the good guy in the story. And so Jesus uh, asks at the end, who, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And it's a kind of gotcha moment, isn't it? And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. And where do you think Jesus learned to tell stories like this? He, he learned from the Old Testament. He learned in synagogue growing up, hearing the Old Testament stories read. The Old Testament is full of stories like this, full of complicated characters, characters that surprise us. Um, and because it's God's word, if we will open our hearts to, to this passage, if we will enter into it and engage with these characters in, in the story, uh, this, an Old Testament story like the one we're looking at tonight can be uh, just as life-changing, just as life-changing as the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you think about 2 Kings chapter 5, um, there are clearly heroes and villains from the very beginning, and it's another kind of thing where if you went to Sunday school, if you've been to kindergarten, you ought to know from the outset who the good guys and the bad guys are. But by the end of the story... Almost everyone has traded seats. Everybody changes roles in one way or another. 
Uh, many will have swapped places, and the most unlikely person of all will have gotten baptized and been born again. So this story ends up having one gotcha moment after another. And if you'll read it with an open heart, I think that the Lord will show you something, um, and, and you'll grow more and more into the person that he intended. So before we go into it together, let's pray and ask him to work in us in that way. Lord, we give thanks to you for your word, and we give thanks that you speak to us through it. We pray for your Holy Spirit now to be at work. We open our hearts to you. We want to hear from you and be changed. So work powerfully among us to grow us more and more into your image, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a long chapter. We read the first 19 verses. Uh, we're going to do this chapter in two consecutive weeks. This is the first half this week. We're going to do uh, verses 1 through 19. Come back next week and you'll hear some more of the gotcha in this story and, and there'll be more to learn. Uh, in this, this week, we're going to look at three things, a surprising complexity in verses 1 through 8, a surprising exclusivity in verses 9 through 12, and then a surprising inclusivity in verses 13 to 19. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 to start out thinking about a surprising complexity. And as we come to this story, it's helpful to have a playbill and to think about the characters. There are four main characters that we meet in verses 1 through 19. And again, they're really easy to sort out. There's Naaman, and he is the wicked general uh, from Syria or Aram. He, um, he's the one who's been leading the raids into Israel, pillaging and kidnapping little children. He is very likely to turn out to be the villain, right? There's also the little girl, the little girl who has been kidnapped and taken into Naaman's house. Uh, she's like the little waif, she's the cosette, you know, and she's the one who needs rescue. She's the victim. Um, then there is the king of Israel, and he's supposed to be strong and brave and courageous. We can expect him to be the hero. And then, of course, there's the prophet Elisha. We know him to be the man of God who always speaks on behalf and acts on behalf of the Lord. And it's helpful right at the beginning to just say, do, do I see myself in any of these characters? Am I drawn towards one or another? Hopefully you're drawn towards the hero. You want to be like the hero and not the villain. That's a good place to start. Um, but how we enter into these stories oftentimes, uh, the way to do it is, is to begin to consider, am I like this one? Would I want to dress up like this one for Halloween? That's a, that's a good way to start. So um, as we get into it, I think you're going to discover, though, this surprising complexity. Look at Naaman in verse 1. He's the commander, it says, the commander of the army of the king of Aram, translated, unfortunately, here as Syria. The Hebrew says Aram, and Aram is important because that's where Abraham and his family were when they left and came to the promised land in Canaan. And every year at Pentecost, the Israelites were supposed to bring a gift of first fruits, and they were supposed to have a little liturgy that they said, my father was a wandering Aramean, they were supposed to say, to remember that they were, they were lifted up out of pagan polytheism and brought into a relationship with Almighty God. At this point in Israel's history, the, the Arameans have been their bitter enemies for centuries. Um, most recently, they were the ones who killed King Ahab. Ahab uh, was propped up in his chariot 
bleeding to death and watching the Arameans uh, creeping out over all of the land, taking over the land of Israel. So they're, they're obviously the bad guys, right? The Arameans. Um, Naaman was the highest ranking general in the army of the Arameans. So he's your arch villain. He's sort of the ace of spades in the king of Israel's uh, most wanted deck. And we read on in verse 1, as we read on in verse 1, this is where it starts to get a little more complicated. It says that Naaman was a great man with his lord, the king, and in high favor, because by him the lord, that's Yahweh, had given victory to Aram. Why was God helping Aram defeat Israel? Because Israel had rebelled against the lord. Under Ahab and Jezebel, Israel had so thoroughly rejected the Lord that God began giving them back over to their pagan Aramean ancestry. Think about, if you rewind in the Old Testament back to some of the earlier stories, think about the biblical flood story or think about the ten plagues. What's happening in those stories is that the order of creation is starting to come apart. The boundaries that God placed in creation uh, are, are starting to fade, and when those boundaries are removed, bad things happen. In the flood, the boundary between land and water is removed, and the waters wash over the land, and everybody dies. In the, in the plague stories, uh, the boundaries that keep critters in one place and people in another are removed, and suddenly you have frogs and flies and locusts and all these things coming in. Uh, the order of creation begins to disintegrate, and chaos rises. The same sort of thing is happening in Israel at this point. Um, in Israel, in these years preceding the exile, God has withdrawn his favor from them. He's awarded it to their neighbors, their pagan neighbors. And slowly, Israel is being dissolved back into the chaos that they came out of. That's what's happening. Uh, it's, it's not unlike King Ahab bleeding to death in his chariot. Israel itself is kind of bleeding to death out into uh, Gentile paganism. So with God's judgment against Israel, and is actually giving favor to their neighbors, and specifically to Naaman, it's suddenly a lot harder to sort out if he's a good guy or a bad guy, isn't it? He was a villain from Israel's perspective, but apparently not from God's perspective. And there's another thing that makes Naaman complicated. If you look again at verse 1, he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Not by the way, uh, modern leprosy, Hansen's disease, the neurological condition, but an ancient skin condition that made you look like you were a zombie, made you look like a walking dead. And that's why people with leprosy were unclean. They looked like death. Um, so from the outset, Naaman in this story is surprisingly complex, isn't he? He, he comes from the enemy, and yet he has God on his side. Uh, he is, uh, his name is, is like the uh, masculine version of Naomi, which means uh, pleasant or handsome. And yet if you know the story of Naomi and Ruth, you know that Naomi becomes bitter, and Naaman is sort of that way. You can't tell whether he's pleasant or bitter. Is, is he a hero? Is he uh, a victim? Is, is he a bad guy, a good guy? It's hard to know what to do with Naaman. 
Secondly, let's look at the little girl and think about her. In 5.2, we are told that the Arameans, on one of their raids, had carried off a Na'ara Katana, a little girl. A Na'ara Katana, little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Again, you might think of Cosette having to suffer under the excruciating wickedness of the Tenardiers, or uh, you might think of the terrible things that the Arameans could do to this little girl. Um, what we find, actually, when we look at her story, is that she seems to be doing pretty well, and she seems to be a lot like her uh, ancestor, Joseph, who had been taken into slavery in Egypt and showed compassion and concern for his captors and worked for their good. This little girl did the same thing for her captors. Um, take a look at verse 3, where she says to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. That's Elisha, by the way. He would cure Naaman of his leprosy. Now, what's going on here? Um, certainly, she's a victim of the Aramean raids. This Na'ara Katana, though, is no waif. She's not in need of deliverance, actually. She's part of the Lord's advanced team out on the mission field, uh, an evangelist to the Gentile ruling class. And she has this courageous testimony that is pointing Naaman to the Lord. By the way, you know, children oftentimes make the best evangelists. And in this case, uh, even if she comes from a messed up home life, she's doing a great job as an evangelist, pointing Naaman to the Lord. Let's think about the third character, the king of Israel. Uh, was he a mighty hero? That's what we're, that's what we're supposed to see in him. Uh, we're told in verses 4 and 5 that Naaman asked and was granted permission to go to Israel in search of healing. He took treasures with him, which was customary then and now for international diplomacy. Um, he went to see the king of Israel on his uh, horses and chariots with his entourage. They had 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 fine outfits that had been prepared, uh, and this letter for the king of Israel from the king of Aram saying, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. If anybody would know what to do in this kind of situation, should be the king of Israel, right? The king of Israel should be a man of courage and valor. It was his duty to hand copy the Torah and to commit it to memory and to live according to it, to meditate on it day and night. He was to lead the people in being a light to the Gentiles. So this king should have welcomed the opportunity to do so. Instead, he did what we've come to expect of our Western leaders. He made the whole thing, the whole situation, about himself. He went into hysterics. He tore his own clothes, and he tweets out this message, Am I God to kill and make alive? Funny, up until this point, his whole media strategy had been to convince people that he is God, that he is awesome, awesome, awesome. And now, suddenly, he goes into hysterics, he tears his clothes, he claims that this is, you know, a, a, a diplomatic crisis contrived to entrap him, and uh, our mighty hero fainted. Pathetic. And then, of course, fourthly, there's Elisha. At least Elisha does the right thing. He 
tweets back to the king, why have you torn your clothes? What's your problem? Send him to me so that he will at least know there's a prophet in Israel. Four main characters, the general, the little girl, the king, and the prophet. And the surprising complexity of this story already is that none of the characters except perhaps Elisha have stayed true to form. It's disorienting, if you will, in a good way. That's the way these stories are supposed to work. It's disorienting in a good way so that if we open our hearts to the story, if we enter into the story, uh, we might just learn something about the Lord and about ourselves. And again, how do we enter in? Well, you, you enter in by saying, do I see myself in any of these people? Or, or would I like to be one of these people? Would I like to dress up like one of these people for Halloween? And I think if you'll do that with me, at least here's what I see as I look at it. I, I kind of like Naaman, I have to say. He's the outsider who's both a villain and a victim, yet with the Lord's side, with the Lord on his side, he has real hero potential, doesn't he? And there's a sense with Naaman that he's designed for dignity, but he's also cursed with this leprosy. <clears throat> and if the Lord shows up somehow, really good things could happen. I also feel a kinship with the Na'ara Katana, the little girl who finds herself in exile with really awful people having to live in their midst and having to somehow figure out how to be faithful to the Lord uh, with them. And she's tough. She's cool. I want to be like her. I think if I had to dress up for Halloween like any of these, I'd dress up like the Na'ara Katana. My wife wouldn't let me, but I think it would be, be a great, great thing to do for those of you who can get away with it. Um, I see myself also in the king of Israel who is so self-absorbed that he misses out on what God's doing in his midst. And I would like to see myself in Elisha, who has the courage to just, all right, Lord, whatever you've got for me, I'm going to do it. Again, surprising complexity in the beginning of this story. These people are complicated, just like us. And now that we see that, hopefully we're primed and ready for the gotchas that happen in a story like this. There are multiple ones, actually, as you go through the rest of the chapter. We're going to look at two in the time that remains. Uh, and here's the first one, a surprising exclusivity in verses 9 to 12. Uh, you guys know the rules prohibiting religious exclusivity. Unless you recently moved here from another country, uh, you have these rules deeply embedded in, in your in your heart, your mind, so that um, you probably aren't even aware of how, uh, how ingrained they are. And according to the rules, there's one mortal sin, and that is religious exclusivity. Because it's self-evident that there are many ways up the mountain to God and to enlightenment. All faith is subjective, so we mustn't be dogmatic about any particular way. You take your path up, I'll take my path up. We'll all meet at the top and be happy together. And in fact, because our perspectives are limited, we can't see all the different paths, and therefore we mustn't be dogmatic about anything. There's only one thing that we can be certain of, and that is the rule that prohibits exclusivity. For most of us, we've known this for so long 
it's next to impossible to see it for what it is, which is a worldview. It's a, it's a belief system that's imposed on reality in order to make sense of it. And the funny thing about worldviews is that they're all, to some extent, dogmatic. They're all, to some degree, exclusive. They have to be in order for them to work. That's why a system like this works. Um, even the ones that prioritize tolerance and inclusion. Our age is pretty smug about having a modern and inclusive worldview, but in fact, it's neither modern nor inclusive. It's really just sophisticated uh, polytheism of the ancient variety. The ancient Egyptians, for example, believed that there were many gods, and one of the most foolish things you could do would be to put all your hopes on only one of them. And they practiced an inclusivity with all the gods uh, the, in, their, in their pantheon, uh, but it wasn't truly inclusive because they had to exclude the God of Israel. When the Lord delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt, his first commandment to them, to the Israelites, was to adopt an alternative exclusivity. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. Unlike the Egyptians, the Israelites couldn't hedge their bets, appeasing many gods. They had to dedicate themselves to just one. The Israelites were monotheists in a polytheistic world, at least they were supposed to be, and for a long time they tried pretty hard at it. Uh, but at the pinnacle of the, of the monarchy, the united monarchy, uh, wise King Solomon became a fool. And he decided to begin hedging bets by building temples to other gods. He started moving Israel towards polytheism. And in the next generation, the nation broke into two and began this slow bleed out towards total exile, towards uh, becoming just like all of the nations around them. So by the time that Naaman goes raiding into Israel, Israel has been practicing polytheism for over a century. And when Naaman comes with his entourage on a different mission, seeking healing, uh, he probably expects that he's going to be greeted by the king and by the prophet as, as uh, people who are in agreement about this polytheism. Um, what was surprising at first when he got to the king, the, the king threw this tantrum uh, because the king felt threatened. He liked being the king of his mountain, and he was terrified of losing control, which is a clear sign that you have trusted in no gods or all the gods, but not the one true God. Naaman went on to see the prophet Elisha, the prophet who is recommended by the Na'ara Katana, in verse 9, when he and his entourage pulled up in their chariots to Elisha's makeshift temple, Elisha neither came out to greet him nor invited him in. Naaman's uh, skin disease was like a, it was sort of sacramental. It was an uh, outward and visible sign of the condition of his heart. And the exclusive God of Israel would not welcome in anyone who is unclean. No one may enter his presence without being washed. So instead of inviting Naaman in, Elisha sent a message out to him saying, go and wash seven times in the Jordan and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. A relatively simple task for a great man such as this. Yet it's no small thing, if you know what I mean. The 
the, the task that Naaman had to do was the task of humbling himself before the Lord. It's what the Bible elsewhere describes as repentance. And it's one of the key differences between Christianity and polytheism. Naaman was furious with Elisha's response, so he left. And as he went away, his words betrayed this worldview. See verses 11 and 12. He said, Behold, I thought Elisha would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? See, he's thinking like a polytheist here. No exclusive relationship with one God, just transactional exchanges with all the gods as needed. Naaman wanted to do a deal with the Israelite God. He wanted to make a transaction, an offering in exchange for healing. And then he wanted to go back home to the same old life, not with many gods ruling on thrones over him, but with him on the throne, and this is the key, with him on the throne, doing deals with gods as he needs to. He couldn't imagine anything special about Israel's rivers or Israel's God. He just wanted to do the dealing and get the healing and go home. The Lord wanted something very different from Naaman, didn't he? The Lord wanted Naaman's full allegiance. He wanted his heart. He wanted a relationship. And that is something that none of the gods of polytheism offer. Becoming a Christian means stepping down from the throne of your life and handing the controls over to someone who is going to run it a lot better than you can. As long as you believe that there are many ways up that mountain and exclusivity is the only mortal sin, you remain on the throne. And just as enthroning the Lord of your life over your life means choosing Christianity as the only way to God, keeping yourself on the throne is every bit as, as exclusive. You might say that there are many ways up that mountain, but as long as you're the king of the mountain, it's all about you. So here's the first gotcha in this story, and it reveals this surprising exclusivity. The choice before Naaman is not between the inclusivity of polytheism and the exclusivity of Israel's God, but it's really between two exclusivities, isn't it? Which one is he going to choose? The one that keeps him on the throne or the one that enthrones the Lord? And Naaman had already witnessed where these two paths will lead in a couple of the other characters in the story. If, you, if you've been paying attention, there's the king of Israel whose so-called freedom has him tied up in chains. He's a pathetic narcissist, and he is so afraid of losing control that he fainted uh, in the crisis. On the other hand, there's the Na'ara Katana, the little girl, who is Naaman's slave, and yet she is remarkably free, isn't she? She may be a monotheist, and yet she's a lot more loving and tolerant of Naaman than the king of Israel. It's remarkable, isn't it? Again, the way to enter into this story is to think, if you had to choose between the two, who would you want to be? You want to be the royal slave, the king? Or you want to be the servant who is strangely free? Which of these two will Naaman choose to be? And that points us to the surprising inclusivity in verses 13 to 19. 
Let's take a look. Naaman's angry departure from Elisha's house would have been the end of the story had it not been for his servants again. Um, Verse 13, they approached him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Won't you do it? Hasn't he told you to wash and be clean? Naaman was a great man, we're told in in verse 1. And so as a great man, he expects that this thing is going to be brought out to him on a silver platter. Instead, he's been instructed by a great word, a great word for a great man. And that's what, that's what the God of the Bible does. He gives great words. Instead of the uncertainty of polytheism, having to figure it out yourself and trust that you're right, God's word is clear. God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It makes the way of life clear for those who read it. God's great word involves doing no small thing, going down to the river. Naaman must be baptized, which always involves both water and the word. It's not just the water that washes, but it's also the word of God. There's no way of knowing who it was among the servants who recommended this course to Naaman. It could have been the Na'arakatanash. He could have been along for the ride, probably not, uh, but it could have been someone else that she had evangelized back in the household. It could have been another captive of Israel. Uh, we don't know. In any case, Naaman had to decide whether to humble himself once again, take the counsel of the servants, and with their help, he chose the right path. He chose to do this little thing, this great word that Elisha had given him to do. So verse 14, if you look at it, he went down, and he, of course, physically went down from Samaria. He was up high on a hill, and he had to walk down, down, down to sea level or below to get to the Jordan River. But he also went down spiritually, didn't he? He went down the great man choosing to die to himself and obey God's greater word. He went down, down, down and bowed before the Lord. He probably still had his doubts. A lot of great converts have had their their doubts, C.S. Lewis among them. In any case, what matters is that Naaman did it. And then having done it, there was a clear and immediate benefit, wasn't there? When he came up out of the water, verse 14, gotcha. Here Here it is. Here's the second one. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a Na'ar Katan, a little boy. He became a Na'ar Katan, a little boy, just like the Na'ara Katana who had evangelized him. Isn't that great? It's a big surprise at the end of the story. It's, it's a wonderful twist. Jesus says that unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's why all baptism is infant baptism, because as Jesus said, you must be born again to see God's kingdom. So by humbling himself before the Lord, the Lord removed the curse of death and restored him to new life. And verse 14, he was clean. He was clean. And if if you doubt it, see what happens when he gets back to Elisha's makeshift temple. Now he's permitted access. He came and stood before Elisha. How could he have been allowed to do this? Because he was baptized and washed clean. In case there's any doubt about his conversion, listen to his profession of faith. Verse 15, he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but Israel's God. So yes, Christianity is exclusive. 
just like every other worldview, including the modern and seemingly tolerant one. But here's the second surprise in this story. Christianity has a surprising inclusivity, if you think about it. Who can be saved? Who can be washed clean and enter into the presence of God and into a relationship with God? Not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Not only the apparently healthy, but also the sick and the lepers. Not only sweet little girls who've been taken captive by villains, but also the villains themselves. Even the ace of spades on Israel's most wanted list. Villains, victims, heroes, even complicated characters like you and me. There is a surprising inclusivity to this holy, righteous God of Israel. He will literally take anybody. As long as you'll go down, 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 and let him wash you clean. As I was saying, the end of this lesson is not the end of the story. There's more to it, and we'll come back to it next week. But as we close, I want to just draw your attention to Naaman's trajectory. Now that he had become a Na'arkatan, a little boy, he had to go out and serve the Lord, just like the little girl, the Na'arakatana, who evangelized him. And he knew that it would involve going back home, back to work among the Arameans. Uh, T.S. Eliot said about the Magi that uh, they had the same predicament going back with their alien people, go, clutching their gods. Um, this man had to do the same thing, Naaman. So he asked permission to carry back uh, a bit of Israel, a couple of, of uh, mule loads of dirt. And this is, this is sad in a way because it foreshadows how Israel is going to be scattered everywhere. They're going to all go into exile. But it's also a wonderful foreshadowing of Pentecost when people will be scattered for the spread of the gospel, no longer in exile, but now in relationship with the Lord, sent out as his evangelist. And so back in Aram, we have the Na'arkatan and the Na'arakatana, this man and this woman, baptized, remade uh, in, in the Lord now, in relationship with him. And they are forerunners of this gospel going into all the world. They set up a little embassy there. You know, embassies always have, uh, they're always considered foreign soil, right? Uh, they set up a little embassy of the kingdom of God there uh, where, where Naaman was from. So, closing, what about you? Do you think about these characters? Where do you fit in this story? Um, if you haven't given your life to the Lord, would you think about doing so? Uh, you have the same options as Naaman. You can end up like the king of Israel, who is a pathetic narcissist, or you can end up uh, in relationship with the living God. Um, either one is exclusive. Either one has its own intolerance to it. Um, but one involves uh, a way of life, and the other is a way of death. There's a surprising inclusivity to God's kingdom, and if you come to him, he will not exclude you. And for everybody who has been baptized, again, don't wait for Halloween to put on the character of this little girl. You can become like her right now. You can be a surprising ambassador of the Lord. If you've been washed clean, you can be sent out by him 
and make the best of your situation, wherever it is. Loving your neighbors in spite of how dirty they are, in spite of how they treat you, in spite of how ignorant they may be about the Lord, you can love them into the kingdom. This little girl, by doing what she did, this loyal servant of the Lord, raised up loyal servants of the Lord. Isn't that great? Her captor became God's captive and a servant and a living sacrifice to him. Go and do likewise, I think Jesus would say. That's his word for us today. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this story, for these many stories from your word that teach us about you and point us to you. And we pray for this new life that Naaman experienced, surprising new life through you to be ours as well, that you would send us out in power to be your witnesses in the world. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.